Just a quick announcement, Naomi Klein tickets for the conversation in the RDS on the 29th of September. We have new tickets coming out at 29 euros. They are on sale this morning. Go to kilconomics.com. You'll see them on sale. Naomi Klein's book, Double Ganger. It's an amazing read. I've been going through it in the last couple of days. Wonderful, wonderful read. Those of you who know your activist politics will know Naomi Klein from the No Logo, from Shock Doctrine, an extraordinary activist, thinker, intellectual. And we have new tickets on sale from this morning. Kilconomics.com. We will see you in the RDS. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? It is podcast time and today we are going to be continuing our European tour. Well, we did take a little dissection to India last week, but we're, we're going to go to Sweden. A fascinating... And China a little bit before that too. And China a little bit before that. You know, who knows where we'll end up? We might end up in South Africa. Exactly. We'll, we'll, we'll go around. We might go to Argentina, which we're promising we're still going to try to get our hands on Martin Lestow, but he's a busy man down there. But when we get Martin on the line, we will talk about Argentina because what is happening in Argentina is really, really fascinating. Disastrous for them, fascinating for the world to observe. John, how are you? I haven't seen you for ages. What's oh, the story? Uh, you know, you know, I don't like to complain, Mac, but I have been complaining you about... You always complain. <laughs> I've had a septic throat a couple of weeks ago, and it just hasn't gone away. So I've been back to the dock a couple of times, getting more and more antibiotics. And it turns you're, you're out... Very poorly, young fellow. You're very poorly. It, 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 I don't know what it is at the moment, but it turns out that I might have glandular fever, which is a horrible thing. Which I thought last teenagers for... got that from snogging. <laughs> yeah, they call it the kissing disease, actually. Well, oh, yeah, would you like to tell the podcast listeners something interesting, John, about what you're doing in your spare time? <laughs> I don't know. I Honestly, I have no idea how I got it, but Jesus, it's awful. And it's one of those things that it's like cold and flu symptoms, sore throat and all that. It's exhaustion. It's absolute exhaustion, fatigue. And I find myself almost taken to the bed in the afternoon to have a little oh, nap. Oh, take to the bed. Take to the bed. Do you know my grandfather took to the bed for seven years? <laughs> did he? That was the thing they did in those days. <laughs> took actually. to the bed for seven yeah. years. I didn't get up. Bedridden. Yeah, exactly. It's extraordinary. Well, you know, John, so glandular fever, and what's the, what's the solution to that? 
solution is rest and vitamins and good food and a lot of loving. A lot of loving. Okay, okay. And no kissing. Less no kissing, kissing, lots of loving. Yeah. It's interesting you, you mentioned the notion of vitamins, John. Because today we're going to talk about Sweden. But one thing that's always intrigued me is why Swedes, tan and Irish people don't. Right. So okay. if you go to Spain or Italy. I'll link or, this one for me. <laughs> okay. No, this is a very bizarre little thing, right? And you know, Swedes have blue eyes, blonde hair, red hair, many of them. They tan and we don't. Now, why is that? And it's all to do. Well, you don't just for sure. But I'm the uber red sir, right? But it's all to do with vitamin D, John. And I'm going to tell you a story about right, vitamin okay. D. Right, okay. Go on, yeah. And a, a fascinating story which explains why Swedes tan and Irish people don't, despite looking broadly similar, right? Mm. So vitamin D is absorbed in two ways, right? One is through sun rays and the other is through fish oil. Right. These are the two major sources of vitamin D. And this is going. This story is going to explain to you why the red-haired, us, Redsers, are a new design of humanity. We're the youngest design of humanity, right? So imagine eye color, hair color, skin color yeah. is all evolutionary design. Are you, sorry, sorry, are you trying to tell me that you're the most evolved? No, we're not the most evolved, but we're the youngest design of humanity. And I'm going to explain okay. this to you. It's an amazing story, right? So an ad goes up in Sweden in the late 19th century in a place called Malfors. It's north of Sweden, where right. they make loads and loads and loads of trees. So a paper milling. Right. And in the ad, they promised the Swedes as part of the enticement was they would only get salmon twice a week, not five times a week, right? In their lunches. Right. Okay? <laughs> because the Swedes were sick of eating salmon. So park that idea, right? Right, okay. And let's okay. talk about vitamin D. So when we were in Africa, humanity, hundreds of thousands of years ago, we were black. The original design of humans is black. Mm. And the reason we were black is folic acid, which is another vitamin, John, which we need, gets destroyed by sun rays. So our skin was black simply to protect our folic acid. And you know, pregnant women now are told to take folic acid yes, because yes, horrible yes, diseases yes. like spina bifida and all that come from an absence of folic acid, right? Yeah. So we humans walked out of Africa about, I think, 200,000 or 300,000 years ago. I'm not too sure what it is, right? But as we walked out of Africa, we needed to absorb vitamin D. And as we walked out of Africa, we walked from the equator to areas where the sunlight is much less. Mm. So our skin became paler as we moved further north. All humans. Yes. Yeah. Because we had to absorb vitamin D. And as we walk towards places like Europe, Germany, and Sweden, and Ireland, and England, we became lighter and lighter and lighter in order to absorb vitamin D. And then something bizarre happens about 5,000 years ago, 7,000 years ago, we become agricultural. We stop being nomadic and we become agricultural. We settle down and our diet changes profoundly. So the nomads, we know that the hunter-gatherers were taller than us, right? They had a much better diet than us. So we ended up agricultural. And what we do in agriculture is we decide to get our protein from a very narrow amount of sources. So in the old days, we used to get our protein from fish and all sorts of things. When we settle down, unless we settle down by rivers, we narrow our protein intake and we get it from 
animals. Right, okay. So the animals that we decided to domesticate, we eat for our protein. So something bizarre happens there. We start eating protein, which is not fish-based, which is animal-based. So amazingly, we are ingesting less vitamin D because vitamin D comes from both the sun and fish oils. Yeah. So humans become even fairer. Our skin gets even lighter because we have to absorb more vitamin D from less sun. And because we're eating less fish, our skin gets even lighter. And therefore, our eyes get even lighter. So if you imagine redzers, blue eyes or green eyes, right? Mm. We're extreme pale people. Why are we extreme pale? Because we ended up living in countries and areas with very little sun. Yes. And humans started with brown eyes. Blue eyes and green eyes are a very new design. So which is why redzers like me always squint in the sun. There was a, if you ever read Hard Times, there was a fellow called Bitzer in Hard Times by Charles Dickens. He yes. always reminded of me in school. Dickens said he was so translucent, he disappeared in the sun. That's me, right? <laughs> so imagine, so we end up, we end right, up Bitzer. in Ireland. All right, Bitzer. We end up in Ireland having to be redsters and really, really pale. So you think, okay, that's fine. The same thing happened to Swedes. The same thing happened to the Irish. We look broadly similar. And then the question is, why do they tan and we don't? Yeah, And this comes back to the idea, right? It's the Gulf Stream. So the Gulf Stream in Ireland makes Ireland much warmer than it should be. Yeah, The Swedes don't get the Gulf Stream. So when you're much warmer than you should be, which is loads of rain and is warmer, it means that the country is brilliant for growing grass. Yes. And a country that grows grass is ideal for animals, pigs, yeah. cows, etc. So the Irish got their protein from eating animals. Yep. If you're getting your protein from eating animals, you're not eating fish. If you're not eating fish, you have to be even paler than right. okay. other people. Okay. Right? The Swedes, on the other hand, because they don't get the Gulf Stream, the north of Sweden is tundra. Yep. They can't have cattle. They can't yes. have pigs. So what can they eat? They can eat salmon in the rivers. Yes. And Mao yep. 4 is this place I mentioned at the top is called Mao which is food in old Sweden, and Fors, which is the, the river. Food river, right, gotcha. Food river, right, yeah. full of salmon. So the Swedes, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, have been getting their protein from salmon. The Irish and the Brits and the Scots have been getting, because we're warmer, have been getting their proteins from animals. And right. over time, therefore, the Swedes' skin didn't have to go as pale as ours to absorb in vitamin D, because they were getting it from salmon. Yeah. Which is why if you go to Spain this week, you'll see Swedes who look like me, but they get tanned. <laughs> yes. Because their skin didn't have to go as pale. And the reason <laughs> our skin had to go so pale is because there's so little sunlight in Ireland. That the yeah. sunlight we have, we need to absorb in as much as we possibly can, which is why we get sunburned. That's amazing stuff, Mac. It's an amazing story. So that means that the blue-eyed redsers are the newest design of humanity because we are a function of domestication, of agriculture. And we know that agriculture is between 7,000 and 10,000 years old. So we were the last of the nomads who settled down. Right. Who then stragglers. had to pale. Stragglers. We are the stragglers. We are, we are, we are the outliers. You know, you get the, the early adopters. Yeah. We are the late adopters. So people <laughs> who look like me are the newest design of humanity. Fantastic. Pale, it's a bad story. So, that, so how you, you see this most, I'll just, I'll just tell you, John, 
go back to the Eskimo story, right? Yeah. Where you see this most is in the skin texture and color of Inuit people. So the Inuit people live, say, let's say half, half the year in the dark, right? Yeah. So you would expect, had they been Irish, their skin would have become extremely, extremely pale and they would sunburn, right? Because their skin had to absorb as much as possible of the little few sun rays that they can actually get. Mm, yeah. But they're very dark. They tan. So why do they tan? Because they eat fish. Yes. So their skin didn't have to lighten because they were getting their vitamin D from somewhere else. Well, you know, the other interesting thing about Inuits is the reason why they're small and round. And that's because of two things. One is the high-fat fish diet that you're talking about, yeah. which made them really healthy, actually, but shorter. And then the other thing, which I find really interesting, is the closer you are to the equator, the taller and skinnier people are. And that's because if you have a large surface area relative to your body mass, yeah. then it's much easier to lose heat and keep cool. Yeah. Whereas the opposite is true if you're closer to the pole, you're shorter and rounder, you keep the heat in and you're closer to the ground so you're out of the wind and the wind chill factor and all that kind of stuff. I did not know that. There you go. Evolution. Amazing. This is evolutionary. We're meant to be doing economics. We're doing evolution, but there is an economical thing to the whole thing, John. Absolutely. But let me ask you, like the other thing about the Scandies and eating lots of fish is that not only are they taking on lots of vitamin D, they're also taking on lots of omega-3 oil, which is good for the brains. And that's and, why and that's why exactly. that's why they're very That's why the Nobel Prize comes from the Scandies, not us. Okay. <laughs> but I'll tell you, okay, let's we're gonna go to Sweden. So I'm gonna tell you. I don't know if you've been up in Sweden, John. We're going to go and talk to Jens Magnusson in a second, who's the chief economist of SEB, one of the biggest Scandinavian banks and a big, big conglomerate owning lots and lots of various different yep. industries. But if you go, John, to Sweden and Stockholm, what I can recommend people is to go to the Vasa Museum. The Vasa Museum is a museum of a boat. I know this doesn't sound very interesting, right? Okay. But it's a boat that sank in the harbour in Stockholm in 1628. And for some reason, due to the tides and due to the currents, whatever, it actually sank, got stuck in mud, and mm -hmm. is now preserved completely. And it's huge. The museum is amazing. But the boat, they resurrected the boat. They, 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 they got it. What, and they what's the significance of the boat? So the boat is 1620. This is Swedish economics, right? 1628. Yeah. What is going on in Sweden? And what's going on in Sweden is something phenomenal, right? The Swedes had this extra... I'm going to tell you two stories about Sweden before we talk to Jens, right? Was a huge commodity exporter. And they were exporting extraordinary amounts of wood because Sweden is so forested, particularly up the north, right? Mm. And why were they exporting wood? They were exporting wood to Amsterdam. Do you remember we, we were talking about the Dutch in the early 17th century, 1628, when they are building, this is this is four years before tulip mania, John. Four years before right, tulip mania. Right, okay, okay. And the reason the Dutch are importing wood from the Swedes is they are building Amsterdam. All those canals you see in Amsterdam, Herengrax, Single, all those ones, those beautiful yep. canals, were built on a marsh because Holland is yes. underwater. Yes. And the only way the Dutch could actually build on the marsh was to have an extraordinary amount of almost stilts driven into the marsh to put the houses they were about to build on a higher plane. And where did the wood come from? It came from Sweden. And 
If you go to this museum, if you're in Stockholm, it's just phenomenal to see the size of these ships. They were enormous. And then you think, why were the Swedes so advanced then? And we forget the Swedes were an amazing imperial power. Always yeah. fighting with the Russians. Yeah, Always yeah, yeah. fighting with the Russians. And I'll tell you one last story. And this goes back to your idea of intelligence, right? The Swedes were the first nation to have a census to okay. count the number of people in the country. And they were fighting with Russia. They were fighting with France. They were a big military power. And in the mid-17th century, they have the very first census. And the Swedes were assuming that there was five or six million of them. Right. The census came in and there was a million of them. And they <laughs> okay. said, we can't, this is an amazing story. Yeah. We can't fight against the French where there was 28 million of them and the Russians where there might have been 30 yeah. million. So the reason that Sweden is neutral and has been neutral since the late 17th century and never fought a war after that or rarely fought wars after that was not because there's peace-loving people, but they realized there weren't that many of them. Yeah. And they couldn't fight. Just be quiet about that. (laughs) Exactly. So they actually sat there. And this is back to your idea of logical, rational Swedes, right? And they changed their entire geopolitical strategy from expansionism to neutrality. And that's where Sweden's neutrality comes from. Fascinating stuff. That is brilliant. Let us go now to Sweden. Let's talk to Jens Magnusson and let's see what makes Sweden tick. Now, from Spotify to Volvo, Ikea to Ericsson, H&M, all these brands, all these huge companies come from Sweden. Sweden, a country, a modest, modest country in terms of population, has an enormous global footprint economically and is getting stronger and stronger. It does this with a renowned social democratic background, with an amazing welfare state, all together with very, very good football fans. Irish fans will know that when we play Sweden, it's usually ends in defeat, but that's typical of the Irish team, but they're always good crack. So what we're going to try to do today, we've been to Italy, we've been to Spain, we've been all around the world, or at least all around Europe, although we were in India last week. We're now going to go to this bizarre, successful country, Sweden. Many, many people get pissed off every time they see what is the nicest country to live in in the world? What has got the best health system? Who are the most kosher people? And always Sweden or some of the Scandinavians come out top. The question is, how do they do it? What makes it tick? And to tie it all together, I'm joined by the chief economist of SEB Group. Now, SEB Bank is part of SEB Group, which is the third largest conglomerate in Sweden, Jens Magnusson. And Jens is going to tell us all about it. Jens, good morning to you. How are you? Well, good morning, and thanks so much for having me on. Not at all, not at all. Jens, let's go back to a little bit of history. Sweden was a rural, reasonably poor country 120 years ago, maybe even 100 years ago. What happened to make Sweden this incredibly wealthy country, envy of many, many other countries, and producer of extraordinary companies and an extraordinary economy? Well, as I'm I'm sure you understand, it's not one sort of really easy answer to that. But yeah, we did transform hugely in the 19th century. First of all, a lot of people left. I mean, not as many as the Irishmen. They left, I think, four, four and a half million or so. But still about a million or a million and a half Swedes also uh, left for America. So those who were left, they really had to do something. And yes, we did have a so formation of labor union, we had our industrialization, 
we transformed from this rural agrarian country to something that is more focused on industry, more focused on the cities, and focused pretty early on on education and got that up. And uh, as you mentioned in your very flattering beginning here, we also tried to do this with some sort of social conscience, bringing everyone on so it wasn't just an elite that got the chance to educate themselves. And I think that's one of the sort of key issues here. And Jens, a friend, a Swedish friend of mine told me the fascinating role of the temperance movement in Sweden. I find this really interesting because we've done podcasts on the temperance movement in the United States. It was a huge movement in the late 19th century, early 20th century, all around the world, leading, of course, in the United States to prohibition in the 1920s. But talk to me about the role of the temperance movement, the evangelical church, these sort of kind of cultural backdrops in the Swedish miracle. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I'm not a historian, so you have to take this sort of economist angle on this. But And in Sweden, it was actually very, very early on. It was it was earlier than the 19th century. It was more like the 18th century. And it, of course, came to as a reaction to some serious drinking in the sort of 17th century and onwards. And there are reports on, on sort of Swedes on average drinking some 40, 45 liters of hard liquor per person per year. So that was a huge wow. issue. And then the temperance movement was sort of formed uh, as a reaction to that. But you're quite right. It had a bit of a, or, or quite a significant impact on most things. It it aligned with, the, or sort of joined forces with the churches, both actually the, the state church, but also the free churches and the evangelical churches. But also later on with the sort of labor unions and the political parties, especially the liberals and the social democratic parties in Sweden, have very strong ties with the temperance uh, movement. So you're quite right. They had a big a big influence. And and as yeah, well, late as into sort of the, the 1950s or so, I think still a majority of the Swedish members of parliament, sort of uh, regardless of party, they actually had, uh, they were members or at least they had some connections with the temperance movement. So so it, it, it was very, very real during the 20th century. Yeah, no, it's an extraordinary story. I mean, it stands to reason. So sober people get things done. Drunk people don't. But it's an interesting <laughs> backdrop. You know, it's an interesting backdrop to this country like Sweden. You don't really ever kind of think of these deep cultural movements that are focused on improving the lot of the average individual and, and getting them to be more focused and all this. And then, of course, you get this flourishing of this Swedish social democratic movement. Tell me, when John and I were young, Sweden was... It's quite topical now because of the BRICS and things. It was kind of the leading light of this non-aligned movement. Your Prime Minister, Olaf Palme, was a very progressive, very left-wing. He was in alliances with, you know, Yugoslavia, Indonesia, Egypt. Sweden had a very, very unusual or very independent foreign policy, a very independent stance. Now, that's all changed. But explain that to me, that, that, that kind of 1960s, 1970s, 1980s liberalism and social democracy in Sweden. Yeah, I mean, there were a few strong characters there. Olaf Palme, as you mentioned, is probably our internationally most famous or known prime minister, where I'm sure he is. And uh, yeah, he took a very clear stance in a lot of foreign policy issues. And of course, he also wasn't that afraid to upset some people. He had some huge debates with Henry Kissinger and others when he was sort of demonstrating and uh, very loudly and clearly against the Vietnam War. And it was just a big part of the sort of Swedish 60s and, and 70s. And of course, 
Sweden wasn't the only country with a sort of left-wing wave during those years, but it was very pronounced in Sweden, and it made its way also into sort of the the top-level politics and and uh, left some uh, some serious marks there. Yeah, and also we all, I was always impressed that Swedes took in refugees from Palestine, refugees from Iraq, refugees from you were very very much at least twenty twenty-five years ago a very forward-thinking country in con- in comparison to other European countries. And that started very early on. So it is a, a bit of a, a, a big mix of people in, in Sweden now. And a, a big part of that, of course, is that uh, sort of notion of global solidarity. But it's an extraordinary story. We could do an entire podcast on who killed Ol- Olaf Palme, but that's a totally different story. <laughs> yeah. And, and you took all these immigrants in. And of course, the most notable immigrant you took in was Latan Ibrahimovic, the finest footballer <laughs> ever to play product of Bosnia, which is down the road from where I am now, because it's nice to get this sort of background that it was it was a very socially democratic country. It had uh, a footprint which was very, very different, very independent. Now, of course, we're going to come up very close to Sweden as a member of NATO. It's a member of EU. These are all changes, profound changes in Sweden's orientation towards the world. But let's talk about the Swedish economy now, right? We are talking sure. on, we are talking on a podcast the podcast is hosted by a company called Acast, which is Swedish, right? We listen to our music on Spotify, which is Swedish. Most of our furniture we buy at home is IKEA, which is Swedish. We tend to have Ericsson electronic goods, Swedish. We tend to drive Swedish cars. But what? Explain to me. This is a tiny country. What's the population of Sweden now? It's about 10 million. Right. So it's over. a tiny country, a tiny country. How in God's name has this country produced so much and continues to do so? And now we're going to talk about a new industrial revolution in a couple of minutes in Sweden, but at the cutting edge of technology, of engineering, all these areas, explain what's going on. Well, first of all, what you didn't mention in your introduction there is the law of Jantelagen, which is a very sort of firm and established part of Swedish culture, which makes it very hard for ourselves to brag about our achievements and uh, it forces us into some sort of either honest or dishonest humility, but it is kind of a un-Swedish thing to do to to highlight these things. So yeah, I'm glad you're bringing it up because I certainly uh, couldn't do that. But uh, I think we are a bit of a sort of rational, slightly tech savvy. We have a huge internet penetration in the country. Uh, we were early on with everyone having their own computers uh, pretty much at home. Sure, there's a sort of generational gap in how comfortable you are with the new technology, but I would say that that is probably a smaller gap in Sweden than in many other countries. And I think probably the basis here, again, would be the educational system. We have obviously the, the free university studies, so everyone can go, and that kind of forms a foundation for these achievements. And then maybe some of that sort of the notion that we are a very high taxed country where everything from your salary to your sort of capital earnings are immediately paid in taxes. That is probably not just true still. We do have made some significant changes to that. So in many respects, Sweden is not a more taxed country than many others. So all of that sort of in combination makes it easier for us to adapt to new changes and, and, uh, and adapt to new technology. And a lot of people are just, you know, focused on that and, and they make some really good things. And we produce all these uh, unicorns and the companies that you just mentioned, and it seems to be working out. Yeah, but I mean, it's more than just seems to be working because if there is a Silicon Valley in Europe, it's in Sweden. I mean, this is this is quite clear. You produce all these new tech companies. You have this incredibly strong industrial base, incredibly strong manufacturing base, extraordinary 
attention to precision and detail and engineering, all these things that other countries envy. And it's, 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 it's hard for us to understand how, how has this happened? Yeah, I mean, there's a, the combination of tradition, I guess. I mean, we started early on and we also have a, this uh, rather rational view of the world. Uh, it's a very sort of uh, secular country, uh, non-religious. We believe in science and there's a sort of a, a big focus on doing the rational thing. And uh, even though we have, I mean, all kinds of problems right now, and, and especially in the Swedish debate right now, that's what we're focusing about. But the big picture is that since we had the 1930s sort of and 38, we had a a very famous agreement called Salkhebod's deal, which was made between the unions and the employers. And since then, I mean, one aspect I think that is important here is that politics is pretty much staying out of the wage formation and how companies are run. And uh, that is all taken care of in the workplace between unions and, and employers. And that's what we call the Swedish model on the labor market. And I think that has also been helpful in not taking so many uh, political views on things, but rather doing what's best for the companies and for the nation from that economic perspective. And and Jens, let's look at what's going on right now, because what you have is an extraordinary story that many people don't know about, which is when the rest of Europe and the world, in effect, is kind of de-industrializing, worried about companies going to China and going to India and outsourcing, all this sort of stuff. So the, the tone of the debate in Europe is, what do we do when our old industries die. And at the same time, Sweden is creating these massive new industries in the north of Sweden, a previously depopulated, unpopular place. Explain to me what's going on up there. So you've got new industries in electric batteries, you've new industries in green steel, you've new industries in all these sorts of traditional areas, and they're enormous. Explain that to me. Yeah, well, at least we're hoping for them to be enormous or become enormous. A lot of them are still just on the uh, in the sort of planning stage. We don't really see all the factories yet. But yes, it, it is being built and they are raising a lot of money. And there are investment going in in the northern parts of Sweden. And I mean, part of it is, of course, that, you know, there are brilliant people out there taking a chance and trying to create something that will be good for, for the future and, and in our world where we need to renew and, and transform our energy system and, and we need to move to batteries and we need to move away from fossil fuels and all of that. Uh, so people try to, to dig into that. And it's also by necessity because in those northern parts of Sweden, they have been sort of losing their population for, for decades and with a high unemployment. They've been very much relying on sort of mining and forestry and some of those old ways of making a living are now disappearing and you have to come up with something new. So now we're in a very different situation from what we've seen the, the last few decades. We're actually moving people to the northern parts and we're raising capital to invest in that part of Sweden that has for the, the last few decades been uh, more of a uh, the opposite. So it's a big change. There are some critics or skeptics out there saying that these projects are too big, that we won't manage to get all the energy that is needed to do, for example, fossil-free steel, which is hugely <laughs> consumer of, of energy. Where will that come from? And also some would say that this money that are now being invested, they can't possibly make that kind of returns that is needed. But overall, I think it is a positive change. And at least there's a lot going on now. Okay, so let's let's switch to what people are seeing on the news in, in Sweden, which is, we talked about social democracy, we talked about immigration, we talked about the very, very good social welfare system, the education system, all these things which propel Sweden to be the top of the league of the best this, the best that, etc. Now, 
exploding onto the surface is this Swedish party called the Swedish Democrats, who are anti-immigration, who believe that Sweden is full and you have to send people back to where they came from. The Swedish culture has been undermined. Explain this. How how recent is this movement, the anti-immigration movement? How big is it? And how is it going to change Sweden? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, the Sweden Democrats now, they were new and they were formed in sort of the 80s. They come from the very, very right wing, some would say fascist or Nazi roots. They have certainly moved away from that now. And, and if you ask them, they would probably not even admit that that's the roots. But they have now since then transformed more and more into more of an establishment party. They are now part of the coalition. They're not actually included in the government. They don't have ministerial posts, but they are part of the parliamentarian. They kind of support the government, don't they? They, they, They're they're basically dictating to the government. So you've got a kind of a coalition government, but these guys are dictating which way policy goes. So where does a fascist root party take a country like Sweden? Well, first of all, I wouldn't say they're dictating where the government is going. But yes, they have to approve of the big lines and they have a number of areas which they had agreed that they will cooperate around. And then there are some areas where they say that uh, the government pretty much can decide on their own. But yeah, the big parts like the economic policy and the government budget that they all have to agree on. Otherwise, the government will not have a majority in parliament for their politics. So yes, they play now a very important uh, role. And yeah, the key issues for the Sweden Democrats has always been uh, about migration, uh, about not bringing in too many refugees or uh, migrants. And to some extent, they have also argued that we need to send more people back. So that is a major issue. But of course, on top of that now, as they have grown and they are now in the last election, they were close to 20% of the votes. Which is huge. Which is huge. So, of course, then they have also a much broader agenda. So they have politics on pretty much every area. And the problem is, of course, that they are now perceived as being more part of the sort of the uh, right-wing coalition with the conservatives and the liberals rather than with the social democrats. But their economic policies, perhaps you could argue, is, is actually more the social democratic one. So it's more about social insurance staying high, not necessarily cutting taxes, uh, which is more of the, the right-wing agenda. So down the line, that will probably cause some problems. But right now, I think they are happy that together they managed to break the social democratic dominance in Swedish politics. So, Jens, can I ask you, why now? So we're talking about a very successful country. We're talking about a very, very wealthy country, not just by European standards, but globally. Why now do you think that the Swedish Democrats have broken through from being a marginal, rather sort of idiosyncratic, maybe fascist party to, as you say, becoming the mainstream right or part of the mainstream right? Why have the people reacted to them? I mean, it is a part of an international trend, obviously. We have already had these parties in in Denmark and Norway, and we have them even sort of larger scale in France or, or Germany or, you know, so wherever you look, you do find these tendencies. I guess it has to do with the bigger developments in economics. People are feeling left behind. I think also social media has probably helped in producing and spreading an alternative narratives and all these issues or ideas about the elite versus the real people. And that has also gained some ground in Sweden. And then again, it also, especially I think after the a wave of Syrian refugees, it just became a slightly overwhelming. And also those countries that had uh, previously been very much for open borders or more or less open borders, 
and welcoming everyone, they also had to sort of take some of those policies back and admit that, okay, we can't do this anymore. It's just overwhelming. We get too many people. We can't get the administration going in that efficient Swedish way that we like to, and we can't find housing for everyone. So they pretty much pulled back from those policies. And that was, uh, of course, also interpreted, at least by some, that the Swedish Democrats was uh, right all the way. We, we couldn't accept so many refugees. So it seems to me that this is the logical conclusion of globalization is the movement of people, as well as the mo- movement of goods and the movement of money and the movement of people discombobulates lots and lots of others. And this is why I think you're seeing these things emerge. But we started, we talked about Swedish independence. And this was incredibly important and reached the height, let's say, in the 1980s. And then you see gradually Sweden begins to join the European Union. It begins to join the European Court of Justice. It begins to adopt European ideas. Now we have, after the war in Ukraine, Sweden, which was always militarily neutral, joining NATO. How big of a change is this? And how has Sweden been affected by the war in Ukraine? Well, I mean, I think we were shocked, just like everyone else, that these uh, sort of 30-year narrative of trying to bring Russia into the more of the Western world and normalized relationships and and even making ourselves uh, as dependent as, for example, Germany on their energy supplies that come to a very brutal end when when the war started. I think the joining NATO, I mean, that is politically, and I think maybe for the Swedish sort of self-esteem, that's a, that's a huge thing. There are some very strong, or has been at least some very strong feelings about this. And uh, I don't think it would have happened in the near term if we haven't had the war in Ukraine. But in sort of real term, real politics, you know, it's not a huge thing. We have been for a long time working very closely with NATO, and there is no question that that's the side we would have belonged to if there would have been sort of a a greater conflict in in the region. So I think in in practice, it's not a huge difference. But yeah, I mean, politically, it was a big swing. And and I mean, our defense minister at the time, the Social Democrat, he, you know, was very clear just months before that, that we would absolutely not join NATO and, you know, read my lips, it won't happen. And then months later, he was sort of forced to to give up that idea. Now, it's fascinating. Last uh, December, I found myself at the bar of the Grand Hotel in Stockholm. No, two Decembers ago, uh, which is, a, by the way, if anybody wants to go to a really, really good hotel bar, that's one of the great ones there in, in <laughs> Stockholm. The view is amazing. It's amazing. Big, long bar, mahogany bar, and all classes of creatures and characters at the bar and really good place for people watching. So if you ever find yourself in Stockholm, that's a really good place to to people watch for a while. But I was intrigued, number one, by the amount of Russians at the bar, about Russian being spoken, and also that sense that, you know, Russia and Sweden have a long history of conflicts. This is your biggest traditional enemy going back hundreds of years. Russia is very close to Sweden. You forget that you're just very, very close to them. You're just across the Baltic from them in many, many ways. So Kaliningrad, you can almost smell it from uh, from the south of Sweden. To what extent is there a fear of Russia in Sweden? Is this something that maybe is a little bit more accelerated or accentuated than in other parts of Europe? Yeah, maybe because of the proximity. Of course, it's nothing like, you know, our friends in the east, the Finns, they are certainly, uh, Finland is, is has, shares a, a very long border with Russia, uh, and they are the fear of a Russian invasion has always been very close. And, and of course, they have also fought them quite recently during the Second World War. So you, you can't really compare to that. But yes, it has always been, especially in certain parts of Sweden, a fear of this. And I mean, I'm 
I made the, my military service in 92, but then there were no question about where did the threat come from. But I do think that that has probably got slightly decreased during the decades after the, the fall of the Soviet Union. And, and we have also tried to contribute to bringing the, the Russian economy into to European one. I mean, you, you know what it was. The 90s, we were all kind of optimistic. The Cold War was over. It, it ended fairly well. And, you know, you have these writings, all those political scientists. The end of history and all that sort of stuff. The end of history, exactly. And, you know, the liberal democracies won and market economy, and that's the way it's going to be. And, yeah, we were quite shocked now, I think, a year ago or a year and a half when we realized that that just wasn't the case. Jens, we will leave it there. That's Jens Magnusson, a really fantastic Tour de force about Sweden. We went all over the shop, uh, as we always do, but that was wonderful. What is that? What, just give me that Swedish word again for not bragging, for being humble. Okay, so it's the jantelagen. It's the law of janten, which is, you know, you shouldn't really present yourself in too good of a manner. It's a sort of a Donald Trump inverted thing. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> On that lovely image, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Great chat. 
and unions where, you know, they came to this, yep. you know, obviously a, an agreement that, that both could live and thrive on. But the interesting thing about it was the politicians were completely hands off. They just facilitated it as opposed to Yeah, they to kind of brokered the deal. They brokered yes, the deal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And rather than politicizing kind of unions and employment and stuff. And I think that was really interesting and unique. Well, it was Sweden. unique. It was actually the interesting thing, John. The fascinating thing is that it was part of corporatism. Yeah. Remember we talked in, about Spain and Portugal? And we talked to Pedro about fascism in yeah, Portugal. Yeah. And he said it was kind of a, a model that was imported from Mussolini, which was that the state brokered deals between the corporate sector and the workers. And this was a way of elbowing out socialism. Because if you think in the 1930s, the big fear in Europe was that we would become like the Soviet Union. There'd be a workers' rebellion, and the workers' rebellion, driven by Marx, would create a, as the communists call it, the dictatorship of the proletariat. Yeah. And the Swedes thought, okay, how do we reduce this chance of happening? And what they did was they brokered these deals, which actually Ireland did in the 90s, called social partnership. You might have remembered that. It's kind of gone yeah. off the yeah. radar stream, where the state would broker a deal between the workers and the employers and the trade unions would sit down and they would do these deals. The Brits used to call it beer and sandwiches in the 1970s, where they'd mm. bring beer and sandwiches into the room and the trade unions would talk to the employers. The Swedes and, of course, the Brits decided to destroy that with Thatcherism. Thatcherism yes. was all about breaking that social contract. The Swedes, yeah. as you say, on the other hand, said, no, we're going to start this. And as you said, the state kind of sits back and lets people do their thing. But it's, kind of, Swedes, it's based on trust then, isn't it? It's based on trust. It's based on social democracy. This is why the idea of the temperance yeah. movement, the evangelical churches, the trade unions, all, these are all very important parts of the Swedish story. Mm. But it's based, as you say, on trust. Now, Mrs. Thatcher decided to destroy that in the United Kingdom and go after the trade unions, whereas the Swedes said, no, hold on a second. This is the bedrock of our society. Yeah. This is what makes Sweden tick. Now, in the last couple of years, they've started to chip away at that because they've gone slightly more right-wing. However, yeah. as you said, John, the bedrock of their society is social partnership. And social partnership means that fewer and fewer people get excluded. And ultimately, that is what is breaking down in Sweden. This is the interesting thing. We asked about the right wing and the fascism and the, the anti-immigrant, right? Of course, there's a cultural side. But the thing about social partnership is it allows everybody to have a stake. And if you begin to disassemble that, as the Swedes seem to be doing in the last 10 years, more people feel on the outside, they feel unrepresented. And of course, what they do, they vote for the guy who says, I'm going to stand up for your rights. Mm. And you know what your problem is? It's that person with a different color skin or that person with a different religion. They're the yeah. problem. So you're absolutely right. What has happened in Sweden is it's an entrepreneurial society. It's kind of like, a, it's almost like libertarian in its sense that you can do whatever you like as an individual, but at the same time you pay high taxes. So the state looks after everybody through the social partnership, right? Yeah. Which is a yeah. very, very interesting Status quo. It's a sort of a, a truce between the individual and, it, and the and state. And it seems to work really well. And interesting, I found something very similar in Norway, where yeah. trust is such a crucial part of society and it's really ingrained. And it was explained to me in a sense that 
because the environment of Norway is so harsh and so difficult and Sweden's similar, that back in the old days, you had to trust and rely on each other in order to survive. So you have to have trust for a society to to work and to thrive. So just, you're absolutely right. And one final word before we go on that, right, is because the climate is so harsh, right, for hundreds of years, Swedes and all Scandies were threatened by famines Mm. because the climate's so harsh. So they got into the idea of organization much quicker. You had to plan ahead. If you live in a very cold society, you have to plan ahead much more because, you know, a bad plan, you starve. And I think part of the Scandinavian organization is the fact that the climate changes the way they see the future and they see the future full of risk. And that's why they're so organized. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.